This podcast was recorded on Wednesday, August 15th, 2018. The views and opinions expressed herein are of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. Welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm Jeff Sherman here today with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today we have a special guest from our local community here. We have from Wilshire Funds, the Chief Investment Officer, Josh Emanuel. Welcome, Josh. Thanks. Good to be here. Thanks for uh, making the long commute from Santa Monica to downtown Los Angeles. Really appreciate it. Happy to do it. Southern California traffic can be tricky, but fortunately today was an easy commute. So Right. So this leads me into, you know, a lot of times we get a lot of out-of-towners that come in and they think Century City is downtown Los Angeles. Like, are they look it up and they're, they're in Century City and they're coming to Double Line and they're like, hey, you know, uh, we'll be there at four o'clock. And we always cringe because it seems that everybody who comes for a four o'clock meeting has car trouble. And what we always like to say is, I think that car trouble is that it's the brake lights in front of you, right? Yeah, That's yeah. what's really causing your speed to get here, right? No question. Fortunately, I uh, I know the area, yeah. so we're good. All right. Well, thanks for coming again. So, Josh, we've known each other for a bit. Uh, we've worked on some projects together. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself to our listeners out there, how you got in the business. As you can appreciate, many people who get into our industry come from different types of backgrounds and experience. I, uh, I was always actually interested in investments and started in the business working at a uh, Midwest institutional consulting firm covering managers. So just started, you know, in the manager due diligence side. And it's a great place to start your career, frankly, because you can jump in with both feet. You talk to a lot of very intelligent people. You learn a lot about the business, about process, what you've seen work, what you've seen hasn't worked. And that really shaped a really good foundation for me. Joined Wilshire in 2004 and uh, spent six years there. I was fortunate that I joined a division within the organization that was young and I think well-positioned in terms of the growth. So I'm CIO of the multi-asset solutions business, which is the funds management business. You guys work in the multi-asset solutions business as well. So you know that this is a, you know probably one of the fastest growing segments of the uh, investment management business. It was exciting to watch that business grow for six years. And uh, at that point in 2010, went on to an entrepreneurial jump helped grow another asset allocation business and built some risk management technology. After that, I had the opportunity to come back, which is always fun because, you know, being able to step away from a great organization and, and taking some unique experience and then bring that experience back to the firm and, and help grow the business is always something that's very exciting. So it's been a, a good run. Yeah, it's interesting you tell that story about your back, how you getting in the business too. And, you know, a lot of people think that, in order to accelerate in here, I've got to be an analyst day one, and I've got to really delve into the models and get all this stuff. But I started off as, you know, kind of a, a risk analyst type person in the middle office, you know, analyzing strategies within the firm and, you know, eventually tried to parlay into other things. But I think it's pretty interesting to see you have a background in kind of manager due diligence and then using it to say what worked, what doesn't work. And how do you think that formed your opinion of building multi-asset solutions, right? So not just focusing, you know, a lot of people are specialists in not just one asset class, but maybe one specific sector, one specific industry within that. How do you think about it when pulling together the big picture and trying to build these solutions for clients? 
I think one of the big takeaways that I benefited from in just doing manager due diligence and covering a whole host of different types of managers over the years was really risk budgeting and the importance of risk budgeting. And you can see that you could see over time that managers that can effectively budget risk and really fully, you know, appreciate the randomness of the market and be humble about kind of how outcomes can play out over time. I think is extremely valuable as it relates to building a multi-asset portfolio because you know budgeting risk at the asset allocation level is really important and then understanding whether you're deploying capital uh, into a manager directly as part of fulfilling that asset allocation mandate or if you're doing it directly through a you know underlying security exposure derivatives exposure it's really important to understand how that risk is affecting your portfolio and and that was it was really important in terms of just process. And what I also learned is that if you can't effectively communicate your process, then there's probably a problem with your process, right? Those that those that have a challenge in, in communicating and articulating how they build a portfolio or how they go about due diligence, usually that inability to communicate is a function of a lack of structure as right. it relates to process. And so that was another big benefit and just kind of taking a step back. And as we, you know, we all continue to evolve in this business as it relates to our own process, but always thinking through how would I explain this process to someone and, and does it flow the right way that it shouldn't? Does it have structure? Well, there's the old adage out there that you hear from clients or you hear for, a lot of time from advisors say, well, the client doesn't eat risk, right? So they eat return. How do you generate the returns? But I, I think it's anybody can generate return, but that repeatable process is really what helps uh, formulate kind of those ultimate return scenarios. And so what are some of the things that you learned early on in your career when thinking about the process, the risk management? What are some of those key things that really stood out as you spent you know, all those years uh, looking at those managers? One of the key, I think, important things that I've learned is that breadth is extremely important. So, you know, you talked about just now repeatability and you don't eat risk necessarily, but you eat returns and being able to generate that consistently is important. And I think that really relates to breadth at the portfolio level. So breadth in terms of the broad opportunity set that exists in your portfolio. So if you look, you know, it's interesting if you do due diligence and you do attribution on managers in general, you'll find that there's managers out there that they, maybe they made one good investment in their portfolio and that contributed to all of their return over time. Is that repeatable, right? Is that sustainable alpha? Whereas you compare that to a portfolio where you can see very consistent singles and doubles, so to speak, across the portfolio in terms of the breadth and the in how the risk was distributed and the breadth and how the return was obtained over time is something that's really important. So that's one is just, you know, having sufficient breadth in the portfolio. And whether that's security breadth or whether that's asset manager, you know, breadth or, or how you're implementing a view, oftentimes you want to be thinking about how can I do this in a diversified fashion such that I'm getting the exposure to the view that I want, but I can help mitigate risk. That's something that I think was a, you know, certainly a, a huge takeaway as it relates to investment process. Other aspects of the process that are also very important as it relates to how you build a portfolio is really fully testing your thesis and questioning any view that you have and how that view flows into the portfolio structure. And oftentimes when you talk to other investors about what their views are, whether it's on a security or it's on economic growth or inflation or an asset class, they tend to look at the information that helps defend or fulfill what their ultimate view is. And being able to take a step back and trying to look at the other side of the argument, I think, is extremely important. And so what we've spent a lot of time doing as it relates to our process is really having that cross-fertilization and avoid trying to avoid groupthink mm -hmm. and trying to hear what the other perspective is. So whether that's, 
talking to other investors who have a different opinion and asking them, you know, why do you have that opinion and, you know, what could we be missing? Or just surveying the asset manager landscape and getting a sense for what others think, I think has been extremely important as it relates to investment process and testing conviction. So those are oftentimes the pitfalls of a lot of asset managers or investors is that, A, they don't have the right diversification, they don't have sustainability of of performance over time, but also they oftentimes, they hire people that think like they do Mm -hmm. or come from similar backgrounds. And you you see that with certain types of investment processes, they hire from the same school or from the same background. And I think there's flaws to doing that. And it's important that you bring people in with different backgrounds, different experience that, that will look at the world differently and really test the way that you think about things. We have a couple of people here that here at Double Line that, um, you know, I like to call them the perpetual contrarians because you say the sky's blue. They're like, no, it's not. It's purple. You know, which, that's a kind of a hue, I guess. But let's say it's green. And just to almost antagonize you, but also I found that it is good to have people who were persistently challenged. And I think one thing I found over the years, and I think collectively we find just speaking with clients, right? Talking about a message, why we think the way we do. And I also always like to ask the question, you know, what do you guys think? What are you guys looking at? What's different? What do you disagree on? And I think it's important, especially in this day and age where we have this streamlined news system, right? We use the feeds, we get the Twitters, we, we subscribe to the same websites that may have a tilt to a direction. And so you're not getting that kind of diverse set of views. And I find it very helpful to have a thought-provoking conversation of where the holes in this argument. And a lot of stuff we do on the macro side is trying to I wouldn't say we're sitting there poking each other, trying to pick holes, but it's like, okay, are we all just sitting there nodding our heads vertically? And so when you guys are creating, well, tell us a little bit more about the Wilshire Funds platform. Tell us, um, you know, what the intention is there, how you work with your consulting arm and the likes, or is there a distinction there and what Wilshire Funds is trying to bring to the table today? Well, let me take a step back and just reintroduce the organization or introduce the organization. Frankly, we're a diversified financial services firm. We have four specific divisions. And actually, to take a step back even further, the interesting thing about our organization, you know, given the conversation about risk is that We were founded in the early 1970s, and our founder and chairman, uh, Dennis Tito, comes from uh, aeronautical engineering kind of background, the right? Wilshire so, Analytics. I remember exactly. Bond Edge. Yes. Yeah, it's always a tough word to say right, around the office, right, but Bond right. Edge was one of the bond systems to analyze risk and do some attribution likes of that, right? Exactly. And so, you know, he took that same math and basically brought it to the investment management business. And so we were founded as an analytics organization, building risk analytics and, and conducting asset liability modeling for asset managers and, and institutional plans. And that was really the foundation of the organization. And it went from just analytics to then advice, which is the consulting business in the 80s. And then out of consulting, private markets, which is a private equity fund of funds. And then uh, funds management business, which was another outgrowth of the consulting division where we're basically taking the you know latest and greatest thinking from an institutional investment perspective as it relates to asset allocation and manager selection and bringing that to multi-asset solutions, whether it's working with financial intermediaries, uh, independent broker dealers, insurance companies to deliver solutions. And they could be outcome oriented in nature. They could be risk-based in nature. Retirement services has been a huge part of the growth in our business as you know we've seen regulation really push a lot of the intermediaries towards the need of having a third-party independent provider of advice, whether it's a retirement plan or uh, discretionary portfolios and you know risk-based portfolios. And then you know I think the next area of growth is alternatives. We've seen growth in the alternatives business, but you've seen you know a lot of people asking questions given the 
beta train that we've seen over the past 10 years, I think that alternatives is the next step of importance as it relates to solutions. And you've already seen that start to happen where investors aren't, you know, they're not looking for a product necessarily in alternatives, but they're saying, we're trying to complete this aspect of our portfolio. We have these factor exposures and we want something that's uncorrelated. And they're asking, you know, we're having more conversations with investors, whether it's a institutional plan or it's a large family office or even, you know, building a fund structure asking us for a specific outcome and doing something that's unique, like combining risk premium with active managers, as an example, to bring costs down, facilitate costs, facilitate liquidity, and and build something more customized. So it's been really interesting to see how the business has evolved. The other, I think, important aspect of what we've done is we've worked hard to deliver asset allocation advice directly to advisors through the independent broker-dealer channel, oftentimes utilizing Wilshire funds as the delivery of the asset allocation advice, which has been, I think, really valuable because, again, given fee compression, the ability to deliver that advice through our our underlying solutions has been valuable. I think I'll step in on there because I want to define a term you used there. You said the beta train. For those of you who aren't familiar (laughs) with that, that is called the S&P 500, I believe, right? Or maybe the NASDAQ. Yeah, Yeah, the NASDAQ. Being long stocks in the U.S., I think, is what you define there. You talked about this fee compression and pulling this all together. It sounds, I mean, the way you describe Wilshire, it's it's just a natural progression. It's like building upon each layer. And so when you're talking about bringing these this advice to clients and talking to the end advisor, it's really what the consultants did for the institutional community. You're just now bringing that to, I hate to use the phrase retail, but the broad masses, right? These markets have come together more and more, right? You know, you've seen convergence between the institutional marketplace and, and retail marketplace. And it's been important that what we bring from an institutional perspective is that discipline. And, you know, we always say, you know, discipline trumps emotion because what really hurts individual investors in achieving their financial objectives is the emotional part of the equation. And by relying on a firm, you know, like Wilshire or any other organization that that thinks about the world in a more structured institutional way, there's a disciplined IPS, there's structure around how you make decisions. And we all do suffer from emotion to some degree, but we've learned to kind of control that and, and stay the course. And the goal is to really, you know, get those investors to their end objective, which is their end retirement and, and planning and building for retirement. So with regards to, you talked about identifying some trends and needs based for perhaps, you know, retiring individuals, you're talking about uh, alternative asset classes or alternative type of products. Once you've identified these, how do you go from that that process of identifying to building a product to selecting managers and what, what is involved? I mean, taking it from that initial stage. Yeah. So we're fortunate in that we're not typically approaching the market necessarily with a product. We have capabilities and, and there's a lot of different capabilities that we offer today, but it's important that you're always having a dialogue. So we meet and speak with a lot of you know, key players in the industry and we're always having conversations about what's your view of the regulatory environment? How are you adapting? How are you evolving your business? What are your needs? And so that natural kind of ongoing conversation tends to facilitate discussion that lends to some sort of product or solutions development. And so that discussion uh, leads to ultimately the construction of a solution. And it's really about, you know, first and foremost, and I think this is extremely important, is is it good for the investor, right? right? So you have to start with that. And if whatever you're doing, whatever you're building, if it's not good for the investor, it's not gonna work long run. You know, maybe you raise money, but at the end of the day, 
it's not going to be successful. So we always want to lead with that. What's good for the investor? And if we think it's good for the investor, then you know we'll pursue the construction of, of the solution. And we will, oftentimes it's an iterative process, right? It's back and forth. It's what is your objective? This is what our thought is in terms of how we might construct this outcome or this solution. And that healthy back and forth dialogue helps us get to ultimately the construction of a process. Now, you asked a question, Sam, about how does it work and, and how does the process flow? That's how we get to ultimately what we're trying to build. But then in building that, it usually begins like every other portfolio that we build the organization, you want to have an institutional process. So we have a process that begins with asset allocation. And that asset allocation, the anchor to that, whether it's an alternative portfolio or a traditional multi-asset portfolio, we always begin with, you know, what are our long-term CAPM assumptions? And sometimes, you know, certain of those assumptions will influence or impact a portfolio, and sometimes they won't. But off of that cap M, then comes more of the capital market views part, which is the dynamic asset allocation, which we use to overlay that strategic policy or, or cap M. And those views are driven by a, a specific investment strategy committee that we have internally that meets formally on a quarterly basis, but oftentimes more frequently, depending on how markets are behaving. And these are interesting times as <laughs> we sit here today. So we're and, recording today when you know we're in the midst of so, all the, the Turkish uh, debacle. Right. The lira is down 40% year right. to date. We were just looking at some fund flow data where the Turkey ETF had the most flows on record two months ago into it. I mean, right. uh, yeah. it's just kind of punishing to a lot of people. Out yeah. There right yeah. And it's interesting, you know, we, we can, you know, a little sidebar there. There's a lot of, even now we're seeing a lot of creates in Turkey, but it's really creates the bar. Right. Yeah, 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 exactly. So there's, you know, it can be misleading at times, but yeah, you're right. I mean, a lot of people have been kind of caught off guard by this, but nonetheless, you know, it's important that at times like this, you're taking a step back and reassessing, you know, what is our outlook on, whether it's U.S., non-U.S., and, and it really begins with, you know, we talk about the, you know, the capital markets views, you know, understanding, you know, you can't have a view on an asset class without having views on growth, inflation, valuations, sentiment, risk, et cetera. And so we spend a lot of time evaluating, you know, underlying components of that and, and taking a view on those those specific factors in the marketplace. And then that tends to drive how we build portfolios. It tends to drive the, the pair trades that we make in portfolios as it relates to whether it's a stylistic view, regional view as it relates to equity exposure, equity versus fixed income, duration, credit exposure, et cetera, quality, all of those are important. And it's interesting, those are all kind of traditional asset classes that we talk about. But even when we build alternative portfolios, you know, there are relationships between those traditional market betas or factors to alternative portfolios. And, and it's important that you quantify that and then you ensure that even your alternative portfolios are effectively reflecting what you're what your market views are as a whole. So once we determine what the asset allocation structure should be based on our current market views, then it's a function of implementation. Implementation could be through an asset manager such as yourselves, you know, in the fixed income space, or it could be through, um, you know, equity securities, or it could be through ETFs, it could be through mutual funds, and it could be through, you know, derivatives like total return swaps. So it just depends on the mandate and the structure of the portfolio. Listening to the process too, and you know, as you kind of describe the evolution, as I step back and think about the business, is describe yourself as using an institutional type process. And I think what's the maturation of the investment landscape has been that it's that giving to the broad masses. Again, don't want to use the phrase retail per se, but 
giving broad masses that institutional thinking, the process behind it, you know, how one, you know, approaches the space, thinks about it. And it's not just, you know, we think stocks are going up this year because earnings are going up, right? Right. It's bringing the whole process together. And so I kind of glommed onto what you just said too about the pair trades. And so a lot of people think of pair trades as like a long short or, you know, I like Ford, I hate GM and I'm trying to like eke something out there too. But when we think about portfolio construction all the time, we think of pair trades, but they can be both long only, right? Right. So rates, credit, it could be, you know, some sort of currency versus a country and things that you pull together that help diversification in the portfolio. So when you're talking about that construction and you're talking about, let's say, alts, for instance, you mentioned it still should kind of feed into the traditional portfolio. But aren't people trying to buy alts to get a differentiated return stream? So how do you think about meshing those two things together? If you think about alts, the way that you implement it, and, and you, you talked about pair trades, some people look at that as market neutral, and but it could be long only, and you're just borrowing assets from one market that you don't like as much, and you're deploying those assets in a market that you like better. I'll just use an example, stylistically, you know, value versus growth. Today, you know, our views uh, more recently have been in favor of value equities over growth equities, and there's a the pain trade of the thing. decade, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. yeah but uh, you know, doesn't mean you're in it the whole time. No, it doesn't. Yeah, yeah, right, it doesn't. Right. But uh, you know, we've been in it this year, and it's it's been an interesting, certainly a year for growth, no question. But the implementation of that view in a traditional context would be to underweight your growth, you know, whether it's your growth managers or your growth exposures, and overweighting your value in an absolute return or an alternative portfolio, where specifically you're you're not necessarily looking to buy beta. Maybe you have a little bit of beta in the portfolio, but you want to deploy that view. You don't think the beta, beta. trains continuing, right. so you want to get rid of the beta. Or not to that your you're point, saying that. Or to your point, Jeff, you know, investors, they're not looking at you, you know, they're not using this product if it's an alternative product to get beta necessarily. They have okay. plenty of beta and frankly, they can get it for cheap. Right. They're not paying you for beta. They're paying you for alpha. Yeah, I hear it's very cheap uh, these days. It sure I, is. I hear it's almost uh, almost free. Almost free. Nothing's uh, free, by the way. There, yeah, there is some something cost. something you're yeah. paying. You may not see it, but you're paying right. for it. But as an example, you know, implementing that in a market neutral exposure. So long value, short growth is an example of how we would look to capture that capital market view in an alternative portfolio, but in a portfolio that does still exhibit a lack of correlation to traditional markets. And actually, that's an example of, in terms of the correlation to what's been driving the market higher, which has been a very crowded price momentum type of behavior, you know, the value trade is the most unloved part of the market from a contrarian perspective and a great source of diversification. So that on a day like today, as we yeah. talk about, you know, there's been an interesting day, whether it's Lira or Tencent or otherwise, that is an example of an exposure that pays on a day like today in a market neutral sense. Yeah, we were just looking at how much Tencent contributed to decline in the in the EEM or the, yeah. the emerging market index out there. That's like the ETF. But uh, it is quite amazing, right? Yeah. So for the last few years, and maybe I'm just getting old and it seems like it's been that long. I keep hearing about liquid alts, like mm -hmm. trying to bring that last level of kind of one of the institutional thinking to the broad masses. And I'm not going to call it hedge funds or anything, but what does liquid alts mean to you? And, you know, is that something you guys think about or you just consider this these alternative buckets and you're delivering it in a vehicle which has, you know, uh, daily liquidity or something to that effect? Well, what does that phrase mean to you? So liquid alts to us is essentially, it's in the name, right? It's just an exposure or a, a, an investment, given the nature of alternatives, that is uncorrelated to traditional assets, but 
has the liquidity of a traditional kind of you know mutual fund as an example. So liquid alternatives are examples. You know, would be a mutual fund that is meant to exhibit a low correlation to traditional markets. So, so what do they contain? Let's talk yeah, about what well, they contain. So, are, they, are they trading, you know, sub-Saharan African debt? I mean, what does it look like? Again, it depends on the construct. There's a whole different host of liquid alternative funds and portfolios. So you could have a, you know, long short equity portfolio that is low beta or market neutral that just contains equities, long and short. You could have a, you know, event-driven portfolio that has, you know, merger arbitrage exposure in it. That could also have other types of event type hard catalyst exposures in a portfolio. You could have CTA managers, which are commodity commodity trading trading advisors, you know, managed futures, so to speak, that are basically going long and short different markets using futures to implement those exposures. So you could have equities, fixed income, commodities, currencies in a portfolio that is implemented in a very liquid structure. Um, a very unloved asset a very, sector very, today, yeah, right? The, the challenge. The, the darlings, when they generated positive rates return after yeah. the market decline in, in 08 and early 09, and then uh, as people piled in, you know, they were uncorrelated right. to the beta train. As you and many of them did not keep up. There are a few that have, but but ultimately, kind of the trend-following nature of a lot of these strategies have been faced with challenges, particularly in a market environment where there's been a lot of volatility or choppiness it tends to you know break apart these portfolios other examples would be you know just relative value credit managers you know long short credit as an example where you're capturing a carry trade or a spread trade and it could be capital structure related or otherwise but those are also examples of liquid alternatives ultimately some of those strategies are more challenged today you know a lot of them have benefited from leverage over the years and that you know leverage has become much more expensive right. as of late and so uh, that does impact the expected returns on some of those strategies because they're really you know eking out smaller return premiums the net interest um, margin kills you at this point. absolutely and then you know the other is just risk premia has been one that you know alternative beta as they refer to it which are basically you just think about risk premiums and for those that are you know listening that aren't familiar you have like the equity risk premium as an example and you get compensated you're expected to get compensated a premium for for having equity exposure there are other sorts of risk premia across a whole host of different asset classes you know and they could be you know carry related it could be you know a curve related where you're capturing a spread uh, you, you could be liquidity related or congestion related but there are basically risk premium across the marketplace. Some are more structural in nature that are a function of inefficiency, like a congestion or liquidity trade. And some of them are more you know, what we call cyclical in nature, which are- Carry you, trade. You, yeah, which, is, which ultimately should be related to a market view as opposed to some type of persistent structural inefficiency in the marketplace. And so I only mention that because that is an area as well where we're starting to see some growth because many of these exposures can be implemented in a very liquid daily tradable format. We've been noodling on that idea for five plus years in our team here. And I still think it's a very interesting thing to be able to try to deliver in that space. Hence, I'm kind of baiting you, I think, uh, without even knowing where you're going there. But what we find with it too is that as a purist on it, you know, think about long and short and the short costs can be so expensive. So it's trying to be cost effective with that, making sure that you're able to implement a view into it too. And um, like you think about the vol trades and stuff like that. I mean, how 
how it looks like a beautiful trade for so long. It looks like free money. And the town turned out you were getting, it's not nickels in front of the steamroller. You're getting $20 bills in front of the steamroller. Right. But then ultimately you lost it all. Right. Where do these things, you know, as you see the future of advisors and, and people trying to build portfolio, you talked about process being important. I think just committing to a plan is, is the number one thing you give everybody advice to. But where do you kind of see this going in the future? There's this whole debate of passive, active. Where do you personally sit in, in that kind of viewpoint as you're thinking about constructing solutions? I think there are exposures or strategies where you are effectively compensated in alpha for the fee premium that you are paying. You mean actually the fees are related to the alpha you right. get or the yeah. incremental return? Exactly. Well, we see that everyone's low cost, but they want excess yeah. return That's too, right? right? Yeah. yeah, well, in some cases you don't get compensated, right? right. And so, I mean, there's, there's a lot of debate about, you know, should you be paying for beta in a portfolio? And we are of the belief, and whether it's in alternatives or in traditional multi-asset portfolios, we are of the belief that there's absolutely a place for active management. We're a believer in active management. But we also recognize that there are parts of the market where there's a high degree of efficiency and you know to the degree that you utilize low-cost solutions be it passive or near passive you know uh, low active risk in nature but low fee in nature to access those parts of the market and facilitate fee compression we think that's very important in an environment in particular where expected returns are lower across asset classes so that is a trend that's taking place whether or not you agree with it it's happening and so it's important that if you're allocating to an active manager in a portfolio, you truly believe that there is um, alpha that's going to come with that manager. And we think there's plenty of managers out there that can do that. But we use both ultimately active and passive in, in most of our portfolios. It reminds me of a conversation I had with one of our salespeople and, and we we're talking about negotiating the guidelines and the investment management agreement and we're coming up with everything and the, the fee's been promised. It's always a low fee. Here's the fee. Ah, oh, it's gotta be lower. And so the fees in, you know, in the 20 basis point range or so. And we go back with guidelines and you know, they want an alpha target, an expected return over benchmark. And you know, we're saying, okay, look, cycle, you know, this strategy is probably a hundred, hundred and fifty over. And they're like, that's unacceptable. We want three hundred basis points. And I'm like, so you essentially want something on the magnitude of 15 times the fee, what's going here? So I, I think there is some balance there. And it's like, and then they want to constrain you on active risk. And they're like, well, you can't have these deviations from the benchmark. And it's like, it's unrealistic goals, right? 100%. And so I think so much of this business too is about setting expectations. So what do you do when setting those expectations with clients? What do you guys try to achieve to get people to say, look, this isn't pixie dust. We're not alchemists. We can't just turn stuff into gold. How do you set those expectations? Because people come in, they've seen the beta trade. The beta train's been putting up 15, 20% a year for a long period of time now. And so how do you manage those expectations on a go forward basis? It's one of the hardest parts of our business. And you know that very well, particularly in a compressed ball environment where expected returns are lower too. And so whether it's a client saying, you know, we need X return in a portfolio or Oftentimes, investors are saying, hey, there's not enough risk in this portfolio. You know, it doesn't, we need more risk, you know. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, sounds get, like a low you take, right, right, exactly, like, right. Yeah. You need to take more risk in this portfolio. And, and that, that's a problem, right? Because ultimately, there are implications to low levels of volatility. And we saw that last year coming into this year, right? I mean, you talked about the short ball trade. I mean, that was one of the lowest risk trades for a very long time until it wasn't. Right. And so you have to be very careful where you incrementally choose to increase risk and whether that's through leverage or otherwise, that's a dangerous trap for many. And so we're oftentimes managing, you're looking to manage that expectation of, look, in this environment, we just want you to know 
expected returns are a little bit lower. And that's, you know, it's interesting because that's hard in an environment where the two years at two six, right? And that, and that impacts risk assets. I mean, we see it today, right? So, um, although it's rallied a few basis points last that's right days, yeah. it sure has yeah <laughs> we went from what like 264 to 260 <laughs> right. yeah, so right. maybe the today we did but needless to say it's a challenge and you have to appreciate that you do have to deliver a return in this environment and you do have to be very straightforward and forthright in terms of what your expectations are short term but also be able to set long-term expectations and so the way that we typically seek to address that issue is to try and look at things over the longer term in terms of a longer market cycle. Instead of talking about the next year, let's think about three to five years at least in terms of what the expected returns are. And is it relative or is it absolute? So, I mean, I guess as an extension to that and you know, over expected returns, the question sounds kind of funny, but what do investors want today? And I'm, I'm not talking about the double digit type of returns with single digit type of volatilities, but- Wait, wait is zero there, volatility. Basically. Zero vol? Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Let's put it down to zero vol. But- <laughs> We're talking about, are they looking for low correlation that could potentially be provided by the alternatives? Are they looking for, you know, high income because, you know, you had the retiring baby boomers. You can get 20 plus percent in Turkish sovereign bonds today. You know, are they looking for something like that because they want the elevated level of risk? You know, or is it capital appreciation, capital protection? What's the overarching theme that, you know, investors are, are talking about today? Well, it depends on the investor, but I will tell you a very common need that we continue to service just simply because of demographics is income, right? And that's maybe that's a challenge that's gradually being solved with rising yields and maybe it creates other challenges, but income is something that is a very frequent kind of question. Growth to some degree, you know, growth is important for a lot of investors, but we're hearing a lot more requests for uncorrelated diversification benefits you're hearing a lot about risk mitigation strategies as an example. Those are kind of the more frequent questions that we see a lot of investors coming to us with. It's interesting even, you've seen more of these demand for tactical types of opportunistic solutions at this point, which is interesting because these are some of the strategies that have done the worst over the past 10 years. But income is just very persistent. It's always, there's always going to be a need for income. And so that's a always a common discussion. And then more and more so today, we're hearing requests for uncorrelated sources of returns. It's been a great conversation. I hate to cut you off. We've got, I know you got some time constraints here before that traffic picks up in LA and you got to get you back. But I, I find this very engaging too. And I think it's good to get into the thought process of others outside of, you know, just delivering product, but actually trying to give those package solutions. So Josh, we thank you for coming by thank you. and thank uh, being another victim here on the Sherman show. Yeah. But before you leave, there is one part of the show that Sam really adores, and uh, we're going to let him introduce that. All right. So this portion is Sherman Says. I say a term, and uh, hopefully you give me a response in return, I suppose. A response in return. Response. Yeah. Resp- you, give, you provide a response yeah, right. rather than yeah. be redundant, I so, suppose. There. So Sam doesn't look at risk. He looks at return, as you yeah. can just see there. So um, you know the rules. So yes. here we go. We'll alternate between the two of us. So That's right. And starting with Jeff Sherman, we will have fleece vests. Hideous. I don't understand them. Wall I don't Street understand. Decorum, I suppose. Yeah, it's the uniform. I saw these ads recently. We saw... I saw the posting. I actually was looking for I was through SFO over the weekend because I saw the Twitter post 
of someone saying it's the tech bro vest or the VC vest that you pick up at the airport and you can dispose of it because they were selling them in a vending machine at SFO. Limited I choice just, of colors. Again, oh, wow. maybe it's my West Coast. I don't understand. If someone can explain it to us, please send us an email at <laughs> shermanshow at doubleline.com and please explain to us why this exists. I saw a guy with a short sleeve shirt on and a fleece vest. What is going on here? I don't understand it. So, Well, there's dedication to that cost, too, because here in LA, we've been fighting 100 and 105 degree right. weather, and yeah. you see people out there still wearing their vests. Yeah. So. yeah, it's just a strange trend. Can you explain it? it no, Josh? it's a NorCal. It's a NorCal thing, okay. I guess. All right, yeah. fair enough. So, so you, uh, I interrupted his, the, his favorite <laughs> part because I had to go on a rant. Yeah, so but, actually, you know, I, I forgot to explain, Josh, that the rules are that you're supposed to limit the response to maybe one or two words, but, you know, we've gone away from that. So I'll do this or maybe again. a two-minute rant about I'll do my vests. best. I'll yeah. do my right, best. So to bring us back to Jeff Sherman with fleece vests. Hideous. All right. Panda Express. Unhealthy. <laughs> Contagion. Precipice. Emerging markets. Challenged. Consumer sentiment. Lagged indicator. U.S. housing prices. Falling. Gold. Falling. <laughs> U.S. corporate credit. Rich. Favorite vegetable, if any. Uh, asparagus. Favorite podcast. None. Okay, we have to change that. We have to we have to interject him into the Sherman Show rotation. At least if you have yeah. one, maybe you can be the favorite. Yeah, got put in work. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again, Josh. We really appreciate. It. I had a good Thank time you. with you. It's always a pleasure chatting with you, and hopefully, uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you. It's okay. Good talking to you guys. Thank you very much. Yeah. And so for everybody out there, you can catch the Sherman Show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and always at DoubleLine.com. If you have any feedback, especially about the fleece vest, please let us know. Sherman Show at DoubleLine.com. Thanks again. The audio presentation represents Double Line's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of Double Line. Double Line has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from Double Line, please contact media at doubleline.com. Neither Double Line nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including and respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Double Line is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any double line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any double line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2018, Double Line Capital.